Let's turn to Exodus 12 this morning. We're going to continue our study. This is really the culmination of a, of a lot of chapters building up to this point. It's the tenth and final blow that God struck on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, the gods of Egypt more specifically. Uh, the book, you know, is called Exodus. These are the actual moments that we're going to read of the very first steps. The, the Exodus itself begins here, where God delivers his people out of bondage, and everything happens here just as God said it would happen. And so we're going to pick up at chapter 12 and read verses 29 through 42. And I'll remind you that, that this is God's word written down for his people. It's not man's thoughts or reflections about God, but rather God's real and true word to us. At verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out, of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help in the ministry of his spirit. Oh God, we thank you for providing your word. We thank you that your spirit may accompany not just the reading but also the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would give to your people the ears that we might hear what your spirit says. And Lord, would you be willing again to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick in your hand, a man of unclean lips, that I might point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Mrs. Banks had a lot of things to tell my mother that I was not very good at in preschool. Uh, there was a, a laundry list, including nap time and keeping my hands to myself. But one thing that I could do pretty well was that high-level skill called tracing. 
You remember this skill? You place a piece of paper with an image underneath and then a lighter piece of paper over it. And as the pattern begins to read through, you can sketch over the piece of paper with this new paper. Well, at times as we've studied Exodus, that's really what we have done. God laid down patterns, and then we've seen those patterns carry through to Scripture, and we've traced them to other parts of the Bible, but also into our own lives even today. Here's one example that we've studied in the past several weeks. When a person or persons who were held captive is then later delivered, whether physically or spiritually, that person is thrust forward to a new kind of freedom. It's a general exodus concept, but it's also a pattern that you see reflecting through to the New Testament, and spiritually, it's true in your own life today. The Hebrew slaves, freed physically, were sprung forward into a new life of freedom. They once served Pharaoh, now they're free to serve Yahweh, and the only alternative for them if they don't serve Yahweh is to give themselves back into slavery and worship various idols of their own creation. It's an Exodus concept. It's a pattern from the Old Testament that we can trace forward, and it carries into our own lives today. Christian, you were a slave to your sin. But now, because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, you've been set free. You've been thrust forward by faith so that you can serve Yahweh. The only way that you could again be enslaved is to go back and surrender yourself to various idols of your own creation to sins that have the propensity to enslave once again. Patterns like this are actually really common in Exodus. And so when we come to chapter 12 and we approach the end of this chapter, another general Exodus concept emerges. It's another pattern that you and I can sketch on the top of the paper. Uh, This is not in your bulletin, so if you're a note taker, this is the main idea of the text today. Every Exodus begins with a death and proves God's faithfulness. And so we only have two main points this morning. The first is unconditional surrender, and the second is the lessons of faith. So we'll start with unconditional surrender. Numbers chapter 33 tells us that what God was doing was placing a direct assault on the gods of Egypt. At times, you might have wondered, why didn't he just get this thing over with? Why did he have to do 10 plagues in order to get them out? Why didn't he just conquer them all in one fell swoop or just one of the gods and rescue them? It's a couple reasons. First and ultimately, God gets most glory by dragging this out, by obviously embarrassing and shaming the gods of Egypt. But also, he does it because his people are watching. God wants to make sure that they do not get into the promised land and look back and say, well, Yahweh could defeat Happy, the God of the Nile, or Osiris, the God of the crops, but he couldn't defeat men, the God of resurrection, excuse me, the God of reproduction, or Hecat, that frog goddess who attends women at childbirth. Certainly couldn't do anything against Pharaoh's firstborn son, who's, who's about to take the throne in a few years, the next in line to be a god in Egypt. Now, the Hebrew people are going to get to the promised land, and they are going to be utterly and completely certain that Yahweh is the Almighty God, and there's not another one. There is none like him, which makes Pharaoh's unconditional surrender not only enjoyable to us as readers, but really profound. The death of the firstborn son is really a final crushing blow to the 
king who drew the first blood. You remember his stubbornness? Do you remember when Moses went to him at first and, and, and said, the Lord is the one who owns these people. These are my firstborn sons and daughters. I, I, I'm going to call them out. You need to let them go. And he says, I don't know the Lord. Who is he? That I should listen to his voice. I don't know him. I will not let Israel go. And then you remember the many times that the Bible says Pharaoh's heart remained hard. And you remember the many times that he pled or pleaded for help in the midst of the plagues. How many promises he made. Okay, sure, I'll let the people go. You remember that he reneged every time. You remember as things got worse, he, he began to attempt to negotiate the terms of release. Okay, the men can go, but not the women and children. Okay, the men, women, and children can go, but not the livestock. Okay, y'all can go, but not very far. And you remember how silly it looks. Well, the 10th plague is actually built on the shoulders of Pharaoh's stubborn pride. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Every exodus begins with a death. Back in chapter 7, verse 4, God told Moses that he would deliver his people out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. You see, in order for God to spring his people to freedom, the exodus has to begin when the, the slavery which has been inflicted on God's son is brought with the wrath of his righteous judgment. And the only way to pay for that is when a death occurs. Someone must pay for enslaving God's people. In this first, born, excuse me, in this first exodus, it's the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And the message is crystal clear. The man who refused to let my firstborn son go free will pay for the freedom of my firstborn son at the cost of his own firstborn son. In stubborn pride, Pharaoh is awakened in the middle of the night to find that the heir to his own throne, his firstborn son, is dead. As you lay the paper of the New Testament over the top of this picture from the old, you see how easily this sketch transcends forward. Because when it comes to delivering slaves out of sin, in order to spring God's people to freedom from sin, a judgment of God's righteousness had to occur. Someone had to pay to spring God's people out of the bondage of sin. Death must occur. The message is crystal clear, isn't it? God chose to set his children free from the bondage of sin by paying the price of his own righteous justice himself. It was pride that sent Pharaoh's son to the grave, but it is decisive love and compassion that sent Christ to the cross because every exodus begins with a death. And since God put his own son to death to spring his people, you must recognize that your own exodus from sin has begun. And here, 
there are no terms to negotiate. As you trace Pharaoh from the Old Testament, you, you recognize that in the New Testament and even today, Pharaoh is emblematic of your sin and the evil one himself, Satan. And there are no terms of surrender. This is unconditional surrender. This is completely undignified. It's very unkingly behavior to have to get up out of bed in the middle of the night. It's not very royal. And yet, in every house under his reign, somebody is wailing. And the man who told Moses, you get out of my presence. If I see your face again, you're going to die on that day. He has to summon Moses back in and go, hey, could you come back in in the middle of the night? Look at verse 31. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people. Both you and the people of Israel go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. No more keep your children here. No more keep your flocks here. No more proud king saying, listen to my voice, do what I say. This time all he can say is, it's finished. Y'all just go on the terms you originally set. Just go free. As you trace this picture, I wonder if you can see the image of Christ on the cross. The death of Jesus takes Satan and your own sin to that same degree of defeat. Can you hear the voice of Jesus on the cross when he says, it's finished? Just go free, my people. God has set new terms. The terms are these. You are now free to live as one who has been set free by a God who would give his own son to pay to set you free. As Satan is crushed, as your sin is defeated, it is rendered as powerless as Pharaoh's pride. I want to give you two quick applications at this point. First, do not expect your defeated foe to shut his mouth and stop chasing. His back is broken. But he is way too prideful to give up the chase. For the people of Israel, it looks like this. The armies of Pharaoh will chase in a couple of chapters in order to re-enslave God's people. For you who are in Christ, this is the form it will take in your own life. Satan is too prideful to admit his defeat yet. His own back is broken. Don't be surprised if he says, I'm going to continue to chase after God's people. I know that I can't really enslave them, but maybe I could make them feel the chains of bondage. He's so arrogant. And your old sin is the drug that he uses to induce you back into Egypt. But you're free. You're free. Don't go back. Every exodus begins with a death, and Christ died for you so that your journey to freedom from sin can begin. A second application comes from Pharaoh's silly comment. It's so pitiful at the end of verse 32. Look at it. Be gone and bless me also. That's quintessential Pharaoh, isn't it? I will not bow the knee. I will not humble myself. But when I'm broken and humbled... I still think I can demand your God to bless me. 
It's not totally different from the way the world views your God. Those who have no interest in bowing the knee to worship the Lord. No interest in humbling themselves before him when they are broken. When they are humbled to the dust by death or sickness or natural disaster. When they're pushed to the breaking point. When there's nothing else to hope in. Hey, would you ask your God to bless me? Would you pray that he'd rescue me or deliver me? But you see, the tenth plague teaches us that there is no blessing apart from the blood of the Passover lamb. Pharaoh's not going to be blessed by some distant hope of being blessed. Only those who spread the blood over the doorpost in faith and hide under the shelter of the Lamb of God, those are the only ones that are blessed. Everybody else in Egypt is cursed. Seems too drastic, doesn't it? I'm not sure that I could worship a God who would be so savage. If that's the way you feel, perhaps it would be good to examine your own heart. Before you would indict the Lord for being like this, it might be a good idea to to look at Pharaoh and learn from him and then take a long look at yourself. If you want to be blessed by God, it begins with an unconditional surrender of your own, but not by force. Don't wait until God strikes you with a plague of death. Surrender now while mercy and grace is extended to you fully and completely. The only blessing of God handed out in this life or in the next is the one given to those who will bow the knee to God and humble themselves before him and acknowledge their own sin and evil and run in faith to hide themselves under the shelter of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm talking about Christ. Every exodus begins with a death and proves God's faithfulness. Jesus died to set you free from sin, and as you exit your sin, he walks with you, and he will prove his faithfulness to you. That brings us to our second point. So we've looked at unconditional surrender. The second point is lessons of faith, and there's four of them. Every time you see God's faithfulness, he's proving something to you and to me so that you and I might learn to cling to him as he delivers us out of bondage. And what comes through from these pages of the Exodus is directly traceable to your own journey, your own deliverance out of sin. Some of this is really corporate in its application for the church as a whole, but others are individual. The first lesson of faith is found in verse 35. Take a look at it. And that is that the wealth of the nations belongs to God. It says the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You see, God moves resources when and how he wants to move them. This is a 430-year fulfillment. All the way back in Genesis 15, verse 14, God had told Moses, excuse me, God had told Abraham about his descendants and their captivity. And he said, I'll punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. God, forever faithful to his promises, 
a year before this plundering actually took place, came to Moses and reminded him of this very same promise. Chapter 3, verse 22 of Exodus. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. It is perhaps easy to confuse the prosperity gospel with God's power over wealth. Here's the difference. This isn't really about the Lord getting you a sweet new ride. It's not really about the Lord helping you purchase that vacation home or that house you've always dreamed of. This is about God moving resources in order to build his kingdom. And by moving this wealth around, he, he, he is willing to involve his own people and his church. In fact, the whole enterprise of world missions is testimony to this. The, the whole enterprise of church planting as it has spread throughout the globe is an evidence of this concept. People can do lots of things with money. They build monuments for the sake of entertainment. There might be one out the back window. They can build buildings. They can put their own names on them. But only the Lord is able to build something that lasts. Something which is eternal. And so when God decides to move wealth for the sake of his kingdom, he does it in such a way that he alone gets the glory and it always blesses his people in a spiritual way. And so in this sense, you can invest in lots of things that are temporal There's only a few things in this life that you can invest in that are eternal. And if you want to be a part of something that lasts, then you jump on the train and you invest in the eternal things that God is building. You'll notice no Hebrew slave gets the privilege of patting himself or herself on the back for having asked. This is something that God did and they could never do. And later they're going to give him praise for delivering the wealth into their hands the wealth of Egypt is, is plundered so that the people can later pool those resources together and build a tabernacle wherein they can come and worship the living God. If you would like to pray for God to provide money for this church to, to buy a building or, or get land at some point, I would encourage you to do that. That would be a really helpful prayer. But we should know on the front end that it is going to have to come from the hand of God. Let's be really clear, though. This is not hopeless or fanciful. It's not that kind of prayer. Because the wealth of the nations belongs to Yahweh. And so I want to encourage you then to look to the Lord to move his wealth in order to provide for his people in this place and in this time. More than likely, it's not going to drop from the sky. It's going to come when the resources that have been put in your hands, in my hands, in your hands, in my hands, are pooled together. And God is given open hands where we say, we'll trust you, Lord, to do something with this. Second lesson of faith comes from verse 37. And that is this, your most painful seasons are usually a spot of extraordinary growth. You see it numerically 
But it's another physical picture of a spiritual reality. This is the beginning of the Exodus. And then what seems like a throwaway comment is in verse 37. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. That is something like maybe 2 million people. Do you remember how many people came down into Egypt from Jacob's family? There was a famine. It was 70 Mathematically, of course, this is astounding. But it's even more impressive when you recognize that they were under constant opposition. It's not like they've been sitting in Egypt eating bonbons in the air conditioning. Uh, They have been slaves for most of the time. They have not safely married and, and given birth to children. They've been oppressed from the start. You remember the opposition to the birth of, of babies. And you remember that people die under slavery as they're beaten and crushed and not fed enough. No one would have predicted as they cried out to the Lord and groaned that this would be a place of such thriving. But that's exactly what their groaning is in the hands of God. They grew from 70 people to 2 million. It's not an interesting side note. It's a proof of God's faithfulness. Some of you may be in the midst of a season of groaning. I hope it's a comfort for you to see that God always grows his people even when they suffer. As you cry out to God and you wonder if he hears you, he sees you. And he is the only one capable of turning your groaning into growth. Just like here. Nobody could have predicted what God would do in the midst of that time of pain and sorrow. But one day, they look back and they go, there's 600,000 men. There's 2 million people. And we began as 70. And we lived for 400 years as slaves. I suspect in your own life, you will be able to look back. And say, isn't it fascinating? The Lord let me groan so that I would grow. Third lesson of faith is found in verse 38. God, God's fame draws the nations to worship. It says in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. In other words, it wasn't just Hebrew slaves who left Egypt. Later in this book, we're going to learn that Egyptians also joined the Hebrew slaves who were leaving. They, they said, we're leaving our own country to follow that God who can do that kind of thing. It was not only a, a partial fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham that in him the nations of the world would be blessed, but it's also an Old Testament foreshadowing of the nations of the world coming to worship Yahweh. That's why the psalmist says things like, all nations come to Zion. It's why Isaiah is filled with this stuff. Chapter 2, 25, 34, 40, 42, 43, 45, 52, 61. 66, the book of Jeremiah is full of this. And so is Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. There is, there is a, prof, a prophetic word which says the nations of the world will come pouring into Zion. And you're sitting here proving the point. You recognize, don't you, that if the exodus of Egypt was today, you would not have been in the train 
You're not ethnically Hebrew. You are the Gentile nations pouring into Zion and worshiping the king, which should give us all greater understanding of God's faithfulness. If it wasn't for God's world mission, you and I would never have been grafted into God's people because we really are the outsiders. God's fame draws the nations to worship. We should be ready to welcome the nations to come and worship here, shouldn't we? People who don't look exactly like us. Oh Lord, would you be willing to bless this church as you fulfill this very thing in our presence? By grace, your kingdom is made up of people like us, but also many who are not like us at all. Fourth lesson of faith. It's briefly mentioned in verse 34, but it comes back up in verse 39. Faith begins to grow when the Lord is your only provision. Verse 34 and 35, the people don't even have time to gather, so they they grab their kneading bowls and their leaven, and they tuck them under their shoulders and their cloaks. And when it's time to leave Egypt, of course, there's no time to pack lunches. There's no time for bread to rise. And so they attach the bowls and they get going. And look at verse 39. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Which is exactly the way the Lord intended it to be. They leave Egypt everything that they've ever known their entire lives and they face a wilderness in front of them and they don't get the time to prepare for the next, I don't know, couple weeks or 40 years. It's no accident that they had no time to prepare provisions for themselves. Friends, if stubbornness is quintessential Pharaoh, this is vintage Yahweh. I mean, this is classic Yahweh, and I mean it in the most positive ways. It's just like him to call you out of the Egypt of your own sin and to force you to begin the journey with nothing else to trust in but him. Some of you are probably in that space today. Maybe you made a decision to leave your sins of the past Maybe you decided that that this direction of my life is actually not a good direction. I want to follow the Lord. You've chosen to put away who you used to be. And yet as you pause, you look and you say, well, it is a little bit frightening. Because I've made no other provisions than Christ. If you're going to follow the Lord, he makes sure you're unable to stand on your own without him by now you can tell spiritually speaking that the exodus is a pattern it's a it's a type of your own journey with christ it's true it's a fact it really did exist in history but it's also emblematic for those who are walking in a new life of faith you need to learn to expect these kinds of seasons you'll you'll learn to recognize when it happens in your own life god takes your crutches away and he teaches you to walk toward him perhaps for some of you who've walked with the lord for a long time this could help make sense of your own journey you're leaving egypt and the whole rest of your life until you get to the promised land the new heavens and the new earth is a kind of leaving of the egypt of your past bondage and every exodus begins with death 
In this case, it was the death of Christ. But as you learn to trace the pattern of his death, you begin to see that the rest of your life is also made up of a kind of death. A dying not only to myself, but also to my old sin. And then I begin to realize that I I can't even make enough provisions for myself. And God wanted it exactly that way. So that I would be left to see his faithfulness in ways that I would not see it if I had been able to hold myself up with crutches. The exodus is a beginning of faith, but it's also how faith grows When you have nothing else to trust, your eyes are more fixed on God to provide. And that's terrifying. But it's also the way that God always grows his people. Classic Yahweh. He calls you to follow him, to trust him, to obey him, to believe him. All the while making sure that you have nothing else to cling to but him. When you have no other provision, you say, Lord, you're all I have. And that's plenty. So the whole thing took place just as God said. And it shows us a pattern. Every exodus begins with a death and proves God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you.